Welcome to the Smart Talk series, the Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in February of 2017. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Fred Harrison. Mr. Harrison received his bachelor's from Oxford University and his master's from the University of London. He is a veteran journalist who has served in multiple news agencies such as The People and Wellington Journal. In 1988, he became the research director of the Land Research Trust, London, and has advised several corporations and international governments on tax and economic policy. Fred places an emphasis on the housing market and its interaction with the economy as a whole. He is the author of many books, including The Corruption of Economics, The Power in the Land, and A Philosophy for a Fair Society, all of which critique mainstream economic thinking. Mr. Harrison joined us to discuss why he focuses so much on land and housing, rentier capitalism, and why passing redistributive policies could be so hard. We just wanted to say Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all our listeners across the globe. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. I think the first topic I'd be interested in having you discuss is how did Henry George get marginalized? I mean, you know, he had a powerful movement, he was a bestseller probably the bestseller of all time. I think his principles are uh, pretty solid and correct. And uh, you and Mason have basically written a book uh, talking about that they basically re- redid economics uh, to kind of marginalize him even more than Marx. Would you care to comment on that as a first go here? What we need to understand is that the power in our society doesn't lie with where Marx tried to pin it. Uh, It lies where Henry George sought to um, explain in his book, Progress and Poverty. The real power, when we take a historical perspective on the question, lies with the people who crafted the constitutions, whether it's the American constitution or our so-called unwritten constitution, they crafted it in such a way as to preserve their medieval privileges, which is basically a financial scam on the population. Uh, They uh, drafted property rights justified by talk of social contracts and the rule of law and so on, so that they would continue to receive the net income that was produced by the population. That's where the power lay. And in order to preserve that power, they had to disguise it in such a way that people in general would not even understand that the real power lay with the landowners. And that's how they came to craft not just the laws and the institutions, but the language that we use. And by doing so in in a artful way, they managed to preserve their privileges that they developed back in the late Middle Ages. And so that's where we are today with a economic uh, subject that is so wrapped up in language that misrepresents what's actually going on in the real world that people don't understand where the power actually lies and what to do about it to solve our problems. Okay, well, the question, of, of course, would then be there's a group of people that obviously know where the power lay. Uh, they're not writing or discussing that. The general population, of course, doesn't know that. Uh, how do you account for the fact that this group keeps recreating it- itself over time and space? This, this, this group of appropriators, whereas the general population can't get a handle or a vision of just what that power is. Your comments on that, uh, particularly? Well, in order, to, in order to sustain what I call the rent-seeking culture, uh, they, the people who enjoyed the, the uh, best of privileges had to be flexible. They had to be able to incorporate the people around them, their advisors, the people they consulted, 
who understood where the real power lay, but who had to be compromised so that they didn't spill the beans to the people in general. So they, part of the rents of the nation were shared out, not necessarily directly, but indirectly. The banking system is a prime example. Uh, the, in the 16th century, the landowners who started to create a market in land needed uh, finance and the mortgage uh, system. Uh, they bought the silence of bankers over the following centuries by ensuring that part of the rents through the mortgage system filtered through to the bankers. So the bankers were on side, were uh, on the side of the landowners. And so, and of course, today, the biggest constituency in favor of preserving the system as it is, is the middle class homeowner, because the middle class homeowner has enriched himself through the rise in the small plot of land underneath his home. And he thinks that that's somehow his property, that he earned it, and doesn't want to change, wouldn't want to change the system. So it's by that system of uh, incorporating, sucking into the rent-seeking culture, those who might otherwise threaten uh, the people who held the power, that the system survived. Okay, well, that's, that'll allow me to segue into uh, the losses of nations. There's uh, a lot of work being done on this on this problem of identifying true rents, true monopoly rents in the system uh, by having to reanalyze the regular GNP accounts of nations. That, uh, and, and you cited Michael Hudson's study uh, back in the 80s, I believe, where he recast the GNP accounts to pull out the hidden uh, amounts of rents that are misclassified and he came up with, a, I think, a, t a, a number, which you cited, and I sort of agree with, of 25% of the net income of a nation is rents, even though the formal GNP accounts only show 3 or 4%, which, of course, allows economists like Paul Samuelson to say, this is a non-starter. We can't finance anything out of rents if it's only 2 or 3% of, of GNP. Do you have any thoughts or comments on, on, on the reconstruction of the GNP accounts? Now, we're doing that here. And just for, for the record, for this conversation, our work indicates that uh, if we identify land monopoly, which is the biggest, and we take a look at some of the monopoly based in wages of finance, the financialization of the economy pays the hedge funders and people like that, super normal wages, which are really another form of a a monopoly payout, and let's say the, the payouts on corporations for, for patents, we, uh, we can account for 30 to 35% of net income basically being a rent charge, a rent-seeking uh, number. And of course, if this was made uh, explicit to the general population, I think they would be surprised at how much it, it exists. And you make a, a telling case that this is really a fund for the people, for infrastructure. Uh, it's not the fund to support labor and capital. Labor and capital is supported by wages, interests, and dividends. You make a wonderful argument in the losses of nations on, on that. In your experience, would people agree with that number uh, of around one-third of the net income is really rents in a, in a society? People in general really don't, wouldn't even understand the question, to be honest. And frankly, neither do economists generally. Uh, when I raise the issue of the need to use rent as the source of revenue uh, to pay for public services, they routinely say, but it's only a small proportion of national income. And they rely on the textbooks published by academic economists to argue that uh, the, the economic rent is perhaps 1%, 5%, 6% would be a large number that they would acknowledge because that's what they read in the textbooks. Uh, so they certainly wouldn't uh, come to terms with a third of national income. And frankly, it's more complicated even than that. Uh, 
Uh, and this is where the work that uh, Mason Gaffney has done becomes really important. Um, the point is this, we've known ever since John Locke that ultimately the taxes which we think come out of people's earned wages or from the profits made by entrepreneurs are actually out of the rent of land uh, because uh, people, if they're going to subsist, can't pay taxes out of subsistence incomes. They have to add the tax burden on top. So what, we, what I've found and what I've uh, sought to argue in my more recent books is this. We can go out into the marketplace and measure the, what looks like the current economic rent, that is income that is not collected by government, but which is traded in the markets. And that appears to be just over 20% maybe, but the statistics are very bad. Uh, they're not designed to enable us to accurately calculate what the rent is. But let's assume it's just over 20%. But then we have the problem of trying to uh, estimate what proportion of the government's current tax take is actually indirectly a uh, collection of the rent of uh, uh, land. Now, uh, if we assume here in Europe anyway that uh, governments take about 35% of national income, if if the largest part of that is actually the indirect collection of rent, then if we add that to what we may observe in the markets today, we end up with saying, but something like half of national income is actually the rents, the net income of land. Uh, well, of land, that's a conceptual problem, talking about it as the rent of land. Uh, it's the economic rent. Uh, which is available for collection by government and for use for the common good. So this issue still has to be determined in an objective way by economists who are trusted by governments in order that a sensible public debate can take place. Okay, well, well again, we'd come back to your middle-class owner who would say, my God, you're gonna you're gonna now go after this rent directly, and this is the source of my wealth. Uh, do you have any sense if we did go after it directly, would the average homeowner be plus or minus on that transfer? I believe that if people were told in an objective way and given a full account of what would happen if all of the rent were collected which would include eliminating taxes from their earned incomes and from their investments, that they would realize that they would be in a position to substitute that direct investments in pension funds, in the purchase of equities, which all of which would be tax free, and that they would certainly not be any worse off than currently, but actually would end up being better off. Not only would they be better off, but they would know that their children would be better off. At the moment, we're looking back uh, in recent history and recognizing that actually our children and grandchildren are going to be worse off than us. And we don't like that as middle-class homeowners, but we have to come to terms then with a radical restructuring of the fiscal system that would make our children and grandchildren better off than us. Uh, but that debate has to be conducted in a, a reasoned way, non-hysterical, supplying all the facts. And at the moment, no, that debate would not take place on those terms because the vested interest, whatever happens, is going to want to put a block on the conversation. So there's a lot of work for people like me and my colleagues around the world to do to uh, develop uh, expositions mechanisms that describe how we can effect the transition to the full collection of economic rent in a way that maintains the stability of the economy. We don't need another financial crisis or anything like that, which would otherwise occur if, if uh, an attempt was made 
to capture more of the rent directly in a brutal, simplistic manner. If it, but we need to describe how it can be done in such a way as to maintain stability to get past the chaos, which is the present uh, way of doing things in the economy, so that we all end up, up being better off. Uh, continuing on that, on that point, uh, work we've done here would indicate that uh, land values are basically approximating the GNP of a capitalist country. That if you look far and wide and took the partial studies that have existed and you summed it all up, the central tendency would be for land value in, in the aggregate to equal GNP of the country. Does that make sense to you? I wouldn't want to argue with it. Um, what we've got to understand is that if we had a justice-based revenue system, the uh, share of national income that would surface as rents would actually grow because uh, that would indicate a more flourishing society, not just the economy, but the uh, quality of people's neighborhoods and their wider regions where they live would be enhanced, the productivity would increase almost exponentially. Well, that means an increase in the net income that we would all be contributing to uh, the public purse. So where where is the limit? The sky's the limit. Okay, well, I don't know where that is. Well, the current system uh, obviously is, uh, is one that very quickly, let's say within 50 years, uh, with rent-seeking, uh, control of money, and the purchasing of land mortgages, turns uh, a capitalist economy into an asymmetrical income distribution. You're always finding 1% of the population owning 30 or 40% of the assets when it reaches you know, its limit. You know, we have a world war, you start from zero, and you go to this limit. So there are very powerful people that that are vested in this system because all of the rents essentially one way or another flow in that direction. So uh, the average person doesn't get it. The 1% would certainly get it. And they basically would, would be the most influential in, in government policy. I think you would agree with that. Uh, I mean, you could just observe that. And to unpack that would be very, very difficult. If I were in that group, I'd rather die then give it up. You know, it's like a horror story that you're going to take this for me. You know, a small percentage of the population which considers itself to be special and elite by education, by contacts, and so forth. So you, you've got a powerful group that forms everywhere in this, in this pyramid because of the way things are. So to explain that to the general public is a little difficult. Also, I find that the general public if you could intuitively reach them about, about some of these concepts and they could put it together in a, in a heuristic manner, then say something to the effect like, okay, uh, Joseph Stalin collected all the rents in the Soviet Union. So I go through all the trouble of unpacking the current system. Uh, the rents are used in a common pool. And lo and behold, Joseph Stalin is here to receive the rents, and then what do I do? You know, so you have that problem of, okay, we're going to work to unpack the system in an, in an idealized way. We can buy intuitively that this would be better off for everybody. The common charge would be taken care of. I think classical economics makes that, that point quite well. Uh, what do you find when, or do you run up against that? Like, okay, we go through all this trouble. Now we've got a, a rent collected centrally for the good of the state, and we have a dictator. What's the point? You have run into that, that argument. Well, the terms on which people agree to contribute uh, their, their share of the net economic rent needs to be based on what we would generally recognize as principles of justice. Now, 
that does not en uh, entail a, a uh, communist-type bureaucracy. It doesn't entail a command economy, uh, a dictatorship of the proletariat. So it's a red herring to uh, characterize the end product of collecting the rent as being a Stalinist one. That's the kind of argument that would definitely be used by the rent seekers in order to thwart any sensible discussion. Uh, and that's the problem, that we have to face up to the fact that the people who occupy the high ground at the moment, who are collecting all the rents, are able to steer the conversation to their advantage. And we have to recognize that and find the ways of uh, articulating the alternative vision in terms that ordinary folk could say, that makes sense. Uh, you uh, mentioned earlier that uh, the 1% the will not allow that conversation to happen because they know what's at stake. And uh, that becomes part of our narrative that we ought to be telling. So, for example, uh, and this is a, a message that we should be addressing to the 1% as well. We should explain what happened in history when people, uh, let's call them Georgists of old, right, have tried to explain to the people in power that for the benefit of everybody, there ought to be a change. Look at what happened in France. Turgot, the finance minister, tried to tell the king that we better change the system. He said no. What happened? He ended up visiting Madame Guillotine. When Tolstoy tried well, to tell said, the Tsar, he basically Russia, said, "He basically said, after me, the deluge. I'm, I'm not going to change because my world would be wrecked if I did change." So I think he took it like, "You right, Turgo. I, uh, I buy it. I'm not a stupid guy, but I'm going to give up all these privileges. Uh, I had a good life up till now." So it's, uh, you know, and I would imagine uh, a good hedge fund manager would say the same damn thing. Look, I'm 50 years old. I got $100 million in the bank. I'm part of this process. I didn't really consciously set this process up to, to benefit me. I'm able to take advantage of this structure and get to the top of it through connections and ability. And I'm going to reap now. And uh, under free enterprise, I can say to the people, you could be me. You could have gone to Harvard. You could have met all these people. You could have got the connections. You could get in on this deal. Well, that's what we had with Donald Trump, isn't it? Imagine what would have happened if the profound discontent in the United States today was tapped, not by a Donald Trump, the arch land speculator, but by a man of the people who understood the kind of economics we're talking about. If he had the, the charisma and the resources to uh, fly around the United States uh, on his own steam and had explained to the people who, vo who today voted for Trump, but explained to them that they, the majority, potentially the electoral majority, could cause a peaceful transformation of the revenue system so that the hedge fund manager would not be out of business. He would just have to earn his billions by investing in value-adding activities rather than speculating in monetary instruments that don't create value at all. I believe that the people of the United States would have listened carefully to that reasoned argument and would have supported such a person. But at the moment, there isn't anybody doing that. Uh, I have to assume that when conditions get so bad for people, as has happened in Europe today and in the United States, that a good proportion of them with the democratic right to cast their vote would end up saying, we want this change. OK, I, I think that uh, how that would happen would be what I call a hard ending that environmentally we're cornered uh, by limitation of resources and not enough time to unpack or, or change that problem, an exponential growth in technology, a marginalization of labor, and that combination, I think historically, uh, any time a society has reached a point of 
1% controlling 30 plus percentage of wealth, bad things start to happen. I think in this particular case, the bad things are going to be big bad things simply because of the weight of numbers, the armaments in play, uh, and now we have personalities that are, that are reaching uh, mass movements who, who understand that they're being hurt. They don't understand exactly why. Uh, they certainly couldn't unpack the, the, the land argument easily. Or maybe a Bernie Sanders could have done it. We have in the United States two, two uh, candidates who basically reach half the population who is unhappy. It's just that Bernie reached the young people who know there's no future, and Trump reached the old people who've been marginalized. I don't know if the twain will meet there, but I believe the problem will be resolved, not necessarily in the way we're talking about, but it will come to a head simply because the pressures of society are, 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 are in, a, in, a, in, a, in a cauldron, in a pressure cooker that, uh, and I think you've pointed that out on the Brexit business and so forth, that the the room for policy or for the elites where they're basically hunkering down and trying to hold just the lid on it uh, will not stand forever. And so I suppose our, our issue will be resolved by disaster. Now you've in effect uh, in, in discussion of Brexit and, and Britain leaving and predictions of, uh, of your view of the European project uh, essentially are saying the same thing. And, uh, and of course, there's no, there's no mechanisms that we know of, I don't think, that can actually make this case as we're talking about it here. I mean, you and I are preaching to the, to the uh, converted here. I, I totally believe uh, what you say is true. I mean, I'm committed to that myself, and I'm a former CEO in a Fortune 500 company. It's not like I, I, I wasn't on the other side. But it's a dead-end situation, that other side, and uh, we must get this th through. So here, just so you know, we're working uh, to deliver uh, some papers basically on the value of land, value of land rents, uh, and what would happen if we did make that transformation. You know, we'd, uh, we'd kind of do a Nick Tiedemann uh, model, although I, I kind of disagree with the way he did his, where your, your insight of releasing tremendous energies and productivity uh, would happen if we went to this system once the elite problem was dealt with. Of course, the question is, we never, as Georgia's, directly deal with the environmental issues because even if we had this system, we still have the environmental problem that would have to have that common fund immediately address the environmental constraints that we find ourselves in. So uh, we have a very difficult problem here because we're racing to the abyss. In the UK, what we've got to remember is that twice in the 20th century, the people of Britain did support democratically the proposal to change, a radically change the tax system back in 1910 and then in the 1930s. In other words, we shouldn't despair that, uh, that there is a... Uh, total opposition to this concept because, I repeat, twice in the 20th century in the Parliament in Westminster, laws were enacted that made it uh, possible for government to begin the transition of shifting the tax burden away from wages and onto rents. It was Parliament itself and the vested interest within Parliament that blocked those two laws. Now, Today, the middle-class homeowner is quite uh, content with the riches of the capital gains that they think they own within their homes. But they would be, I believe, amenable to a reasoned discussion based partly on statistics, because they have to be persuaded that the evidence is rock solid, but also the narrative. We need to find ways of explaining to them uh, in human terms, that 
their grandchildren, for example, are going to be a lot worse off. The average homeowner, let's say here in Britain, is a reasonable person. And that's why I have to remain optimistic that if we find the right way of explaining to them uh, that it's to everybody's advantage, including their children and grandchildren, they will respond, providing we document the case statistically, authoritatively, but also translate the dry statistics into narratives that make sense. And using the internet, uh, uh, films on YouTube and so on, so that they can access the vision of the future. That's what we've got to develop, a vision of the future that makes sense to the majority. That's the only way we're going to capture the collective imagination in a way that leads to the democratic transformation that we desperately need. Right, let, me, let me point out something that I think is true. That these land gains are only accruing, even in the housing, only to certain areas of countries. For example, probably in England, only the London area really captures the bulk of the real estate gains. And in, in the United States, it's really a few zip codes. New York City and L.A., San Francisco, uh, you know, maybe 15 zip codes are capturing the bulk of that increase. The flyover America, the Trump America, is not making it on capital gains because there's no activity <coughs> that's generating uh, this ki these kinds of rent potentials. So uh, I think the bulk of the homeowners are probably not benefiting all that great from increases in, uh, in price. And that leads me to a discussion of free trade and, and the pitfalls of free trade relative to the working out of the end result of it on a home population. Uh, I think you've dealt with that, a comment on that. Would you reiterate your arguments that essentially when you have free trade and, and you don't have a, a land tax kind of a situation, that all the gains from free trade will either end up in the hands of multinational corporations who may place them anywhere, or to relatively few people, and that the, the working class does not really benefit, except for a short time they might have lower prices, longer time they have no jobs, and then they have to be taken care of by welfare. So you've, you've, done, you've, you've made comments on that that are quite interesting, if you would care to give your thoughts on the concept of free trade relative to this rent-seeking uh, situation. Uh, the key thing that we have to always bear in mind is that no matter what steps are taken to improving productivity, uh, the net income, the net gains, the productivity of those developments are captured uh, in the form of land rents. So whether we've got free trade or uh, increased infrastructure investment within our own country, uh, the increase in the productivity ends up increasing the net income, the bit above what is collected as wages or as interest. And that goes to either the government, if it will collect it, or into private pockets. So, for instance, uh, in the States, we now know that uh, your next president is going to spend a, bit, a trillion dollars raising productivity through investment in infrastructure. Well, that sounds wonderful. And he's persuaded a lot of blue collar workers that they're going to be better off because of that. They aren't. The people who will be better off is Donald Trump and the people like him who own the land, who will capture the net increase in productivity arising from uh, all that public investment in infrastructure. And the same with free trade. The globalization, which Mr. Trump has turned into a villain in, in his election campaign, is not really at fault. The fault lies with the failure of government that failed to capture the net gains from the free trade to plow back into the communities so that even if some of the towns in America lost their traditional factories, the flow back of funds from the increase in the productivity could have been reinvested into those uh, uh, communities and they could have uh, developed the new kinds of occupations that we need for the future.
But that wasn't done. But it was the fault of governance, not globalization. Okay. Uh, and continuing on that vein, uh, the Brexit vote, uh, England leaving uh, Europe. Uh, we don't have any specific knowledge that you will have, but uh, how, uh, how similar in, uh, in, in uh, feel is that to the Trump movement here? Uh, what, is, what was the issue that the bulk of Englishmen decided to leave the common market, the free trade area, and, and kind of go it alone? What was the uh, zeitgeist here of, of the English people? outside of London anyway. The, uh, perhaps the single most important reason why people in the north of England voted overwhelmingly for Brexit was the same reason why many people voted for Mr. Trump in the United States, which is that traditional industries disappeared, uh, cheap goods were bought from China, and in our case, we had a lot of immigrants coming from Eastern Europe, in your case, from uh, the Latin countries of the South, uh, taking up jobs that would otherwise have gone to British folk. And so out of that melange of uh, emotions and events came this grudge that something's wrong, which of course it is, uh, and let's take it out of being members of the European Union by pulling out of the, the European Union. The objection was not to the common market as such. It was, uh, well, we created scapegoats. Oh, the bureaucrats in Brussels. Well, sure, they are bureaucrats. That's true. Uh, our parliament isn't making the right decisions. Well, that's true, too. Uh, but the, the blue collar worker up in the north of England who can see wage, real wage rates dropping couldn't articulate, can't still articulate the real, the fundamental problem. So let me describe it very quickly to you, if I may. The, the problem is that Europe, as I explained in my book on Brexit, the problem is that when the European Union was created, it wasn't created on sound financial principles and good governance, meaning uh, basing the a uh, revenue system on the rents that would be created as a result of enlarging this common market within Europe. There would be gains from this free market, from getting rid of the tariff barriers and so on. But who was going to capture those gains? Not the industrial factory workers, the lower classes, the people right at the bottom. They would be gained, uh, 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 captured by the landowners, property owners like me sitting in a home in London, by the financiers who were issuing the mortgages and so on. Now, uh, instead of addressing that problem, what Brussels did was to say, well, we've got these four freedoms, one of which is the movement of people. So when we allowed uh, the East European former Soviet countries to join, instead of saying to the governments of those uh, newly uh, emancipated countries, look, base your governance on uh, principles of justice so that you develop your economies, people will want to stay at home, uh, build a new kind of society. No, they didn't do that. They just said, now you are part of the common market. If you want to send your unemployed workers to London, to the north of England, to France and Germany, you are free to do so. So the governments of those uh, Europe, East European countries were let off the hook. Their bad governance uh, was something that they weren't held accountable for. They didn't develop a coherent economic strategy to rebuild the ex-Soviet economies. Instead, they, they used the free movement of people as a safety valve. Get rid of them. Get rid of the unemployed people. Send them to Western Europe, to Britain. Uh, and that means that we don't have these people to create problems in Romania, Bulgaria, Slovenia, and so on. So the people up in the north of England were not only getting the bad governance from Westminster, but they were seeing all these people being driven out of their home territories from Eastern Europe, coming in and taking knock pushing down wages and taking their jobs. 
So it's, this is not a problem of free trade. It is a problem of bad governance. Okay. And continuing on that, any comments on Greece in particular? I mean, we've done a lot of work. Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek finance minister, uh, J.B. Galbraith, who was an advisor to him during that Greek crisis, which you're, I'm sure you're familiar with. Any comments as to how a country like Greece could save itself from the structure of, of, of Europe as it now exists? What would uh, uh, land taxation do for them when they're over-determined by huge debts that essentially swamp that little nation? Do you have any, any thoughts on what you would do if you were a Greek, if you could, to extricate yourself from the hor basically horrible situation of tremendous debts, the, uh, the uh, European majors like Germany and France buying up all the infrastructure, privatizing it, and essentially leaving that country for dead. Do you have any comments on that? Uh... Yes, I do. I saw your interview with Yanis Varoufakis. Uh, and as a result of that, I contacted him when he was the finance minister. And I pointed out that he seemed to understand Henry George because he discussed uh, George's economics with you in one of your earlier films. So I said to him, Look, now you are the finance minister. You have the opportunity to push the case for a restructuring of the fiscal system in Brussels. Uh, no matter how incrementally done, it would begin to have a beneficial effect. So some of the infrastructure problems, some of the tax reforms that you need, some of the corruption that is endemic in Greece could begin to be resolved by this one reform, fiscal reform. He had the power to put that case to the people in Brussels. He didn't do it. And his answer to me was, what makes you think they would agree to it? Well, this was um, terrible to hear. A guy who claimed to understand Henry George, who said he wanted to uh, truth to prevail in uh, the corridors of power, who appears to be uh, independent-minded, decided that this was not the way to go because he didn't think that the people in Brussels would take any yeah, notice. We, we were very Without disappointed. Yeah. We were very disappointed because we were pushing him also in that direction. Uh, that's, what, that's what I gathered when I saw your interview with him, which led me to believe there was hope that he might be willing to use his imagination for on behalf of people of Greece who are, Greece is a bombed out country. It's a disaster. They couldn't get any worse. They could get better. Uh, this was the historic opportunity for him to register the correct financial model. And it would have been to the benefit of everybody in Europe had he done so. They, it, he had the command of the media. He could have made this speech everywhere throughout Europe, and it would have seemed reasonable, and the people of Greece would have backed him, but he didn't do it. He chickened out. Well, did you see the interview I had with James Galbraith about the inside story of that? I did one recently where he was sitting side by side with uh, Varoufakis and uh, outlined what, what happened in those negotiations, just for your, your own edification. Uh, really a case of basically a fascist slam down at the end of the day. Uh, and I think, and I, I always felt that the British people resonated over the past two years with the, the high handedness of the treatment of Greece. And basically being independent minded said, hey, with everything going on and what we see, the true nature of this uh, troika is, what's the point of us staying here? Would you say there's any truth to that? <clears throat> well, With well the, from your perspective. Hey, hey, sorry, sorry, can you can repeat you your repeat question, question, please? I'm basically saying, would the English people have gotten us a subliminal message by observing the treatment of Greece openly exposed by the Troika, where there was no hidden, they couldn't hide the game. They was pushing their faces 
and they had to overtly react. I mean, and I would imagine the English people saw that, at least subliminally, and had the, had the vision of, oh my God, it, just because we're bigger, they can't push us around. But the tendency would be, if we were ever weak, we would get the, you must do this, no debate. Yes. The, the important difference between Britain and Greece, of course, is that we're not in the euro. So we're not captive in the way that Greece and the southern countries of Europe are. Uh, but yes, it, it, uh, what happened not only to the people of Greece, but southern Italy, Spain, Portugal, the people of Ireland, they all suffered by being locked into the euro and they're being exploited. And what the people of Britain could see is, and this includes those who are dedicated to remaining in Europe, uh, what they can see is that the power being exercised by the central bank in Frankfurt, uh, the influence of Germany uh, and the Brussels uh, bureaucracy is all weighted against countries like uh, Greece. Now, what we've got to remember, of course, is that Greece is not free of blame, but the model that's being pushed on them by, that is the austerity model, being pushed on them by the central powers in Europe is not going to solve the problems of Italy, which are, uh, are breaking out in the news today, of course, or Greece, or the southern regions of uh, um, Spain and uh, Portugal and Ireland. So, yes, uh, by observing that kind of behavior, the Brits decided we're better off on our own. Uh, one final uh, discussion, if you would. Uh, you've alluded to the consequences of not making the changes that we've discussed by basically reorienting, reorienting the true patrimony, the true revenues for the good of the country by not doing that, by not going to a George's paradigm, that you see ever-increasing problems and destruction and, uh, and uh, uh, a worse and worse uh, situation, especially in Europe. I think you've alluded to the fact that this is going to get worse. And uh, what is your basis of, uh, of saying that, other than you can see the trend and of, this, of these policies, and they get more acute, and wealth gets more concentrated. You've made some predictions based on your observation of what we've discussed in terms of the future of Europe if they don't change their policies. Would you care to uh, comment on that? Yes. There are two ways of viewing the future. One is in theory, and the other other is looking back in history and the uh, events that uh, have occurred repeatedly and trying to decide whether there is any likelihood of a repetition of the kinds of things that have happened in the past. On both those scores, theory and history, it looks to me like Europe will be one of the areas heading for a generalized world war. Well, uh, my problem with having made that kind of a forecast some years ago at a conference in Argentina is this. In effect, we've already begun this next Third World War. Take, for example, the intervention of Russia in the presidential campaign of the United States this year. That was the intervention of one power in the freedom of people in another country to decide who their next president would be. The leaking of material against one candidate in favor of the other one was a declaration of war. It's as, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But that's just one element, the use of the Internet, the digital weapons to create havoc in other parts of the world. It's just one element but it's part of the big picture of what is the next, the Third World War. Um, uh, switching from Europe to uh, China, for example, and the uh, uh, Asian uh, South Pacific uh, region, uh, we've got a real problem with China. And again, it comes back to the land issue. Because China decided to transform away from the pure command economy in favor of something that looks like free markets, 
or markets at any rate, they've begun to not only privatize the possession of land, but they privatize the whole of the rent of the land. One consequence, really serious one, which the Western analysts have not taken into account yet, is this. In the past, when uh, China's economy has gone into a slump, they were able to solve the political problem by pushing millions of unemployed people back to the family farm in the countryside. So they would go off on the trains, spend a year or two on the family plots, earning a living before the economy recovered. Then they came back to the towns and worked in the factories. But with the, with the elimination of the family plots, the family farms in the countryside now, those millions of unemployed workers who will be concentrating in the big towns in China, they, they, their, their discontent and anger will not be diffused by being sent off to the family farms that no longer exist. So China, the Politburo, will have to find a way of channeling that discontent, which means conscription bringing them in, young men into the army. But once you start bringing millions into an army, you've got to use them in some way. So you couple that internal economic problem with uh, the macho demonstrations of we're in charge of the South Pacific, not the Americans. And Mr. Trump is not going to help that process. Uh, and we have a Tinder uh, spot uh, developing in China, that's just one of the global regional instability points that leads me to conclude that unless our wisdom, our vision of a peaceful and prosperous future can prevail, we're going to end up uh, experiencing a terrible conflagration. I'm sorry, but I really think that that is the prospect now. Well, I'm going to end on a positive note here. You've cited Hong Kong, at least in its uh, heyday, as the closest thing to a, a Georgia system that we can observe in the real world. Would that be a fair characterization of your view of Hong Kong? It's fair of Hong Kong, but not just Hong Kong. We can go to Singapore and see more or less the same success story. And we can go to other countries, actually. Taiwan offers a of a, a, a wonderful story and important for the Chinese to learn that if they initiate transformation based on the model of land to the tiller and land value taxation, as they called it, uh, well, they ended up with the first Asian tiger. And we still got Denmark, which applies the land tax. It's not as good as it used to be, but still within Europe, we have a pure land value tax. And it, within Europe, if I ask people to name the country that is recognized as the happiest nation, actually not just in Europe, but uh, according to the UN in, in the world, which country is it? Well, it's Denmark, which is the country that is registered as the least corrupt in the world. Well, actually, Denmark is the top of the, the league. And when I say, well, which is the, the country in Europe that has the best housing market, the most living space per family? It's Denmark. Well, and Denmark is the only country with a land value tax. So we do have stories from around the world to illustrate our general theoretical narrative. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.